Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Lawyer's Toolbox on Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine, the Law Publicist. The show is brought to you by Law Publicist Communications, a legal marketing and public relations agency. The production of Law Talk Radio is funded through our sponsor donations and by advertisers. We bring you, work hard to bring you new and pragmatic content on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons at 3 o'clock Central. Today's guest is software and technology attorney Marcus Stephen Harris of the global law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, a top-tier software and technology law firm with an impressive reputation for knowing the industries from inside and out. The law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, offers unparalleled legal services to global software, technology, and intellectual property clients. Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, is located downtown Chicago, Illinois. Their website for more information is www.mshtechlaw.com. So M-S-H-T-E-C-H-L-A-W.com. We do want to welcome callers to the show this afternoon. Code one, it lets you know that our programming is neutral and objective and that your counterpoints are always welcome. You may dial 917-889-9732 and press option one to be placed in our caller queue. That telephone number again is 917-889-9732, option one for the caller queue. By way of short disclaimer, we want to let you know that this is a general information program and the advice shown on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to attorney-client relationships. Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests. And finally, all callers remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Before we get going today, I want to let you know about a few upcoming events. First, the Chicago Lawyer Magazine's Off the Pages series presents Taking Care of Business on September 20th, 2011. Three panels of interest are, one, how to grow your book of business in a challenging economy. Secondly, building a relationship with your in-house lawyers. Third, motivating and keeping young talent. The panelists presenting at this event are top attorneys and executives with valuable insight. This event will be held from 7.30 to 11 a.m. at the University Club in Chicago. For more early bird registration and information, you may call Olivia Clark at Law Bulletin. For more information, telephone number is 312-644-4033, or you can email Olivia at O-C-L-A-R-K-E at lbpc.com. MCLE credit is pending for this event, and sponsorship duties are available. There is another Off the Pages series from Chicago Lawyer Magazine. That's going to be a, a one month later. This one is going to be on October 18th. title of that event is Taking Diversity Seriously. The two panels there are, number one, being a woman in this legal industry, how do you navigate the challenging waters, and secondly, a detailed look at local diversity statistics. In addition, keynote speaker presenting will be Aaron Reeves from NextGens, and that is spelled N-E-X-T-I-O-N-S. Reeves is a Chicago lawyer columnist and diversity expert who will present, quote, a status report on diversity, end quote. This event will take place from 7.30 to 11, just like the other one, also at the University Club in Chicago. And again, Olivia Clark has more information. She's at 312-644-4033. Now, as for subject matter for today's show, cloud computing and software selection have recently earned the attention of many Main Street law firms who want to propel their business forward while saving time and money. 
Some of the initial responses to cloud computing was that online access to documents and software made it easier for lawyers to work from their home computer or laptop, leading to more flexible and work schedules. Cloud or off-site technology, however, fell under some fire when reports surfaced that Google was collecting information on users. Many lawyers felt that their data was not secure. Our software and technology attorney, Marcus Stephen Harris, will talk a little bit today about cloud computing as well as law firm software selection, dispelling some of the uh, some of the word on the street that people uh, believe about cloud computing and software. So, uh, without further ado, let's get going. Marcus, are you there? I am here, Nick. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to come on your show today. Oh, thank you for being our resident software and tech guy, um, software and tech lawyer. I really appreciate uh, you telling us a little bit about uh, some of this from your point of expertise um, in that you work with software selection and software licensing um, at a pretty large part of your practice, right? Yeah, it's, it's primarily what we do. We also do some kind of standard intellectual property work as well, but the bulk of our, our practice, the lion's share of of the practice is really dedicated to drafting and negotiating a variety of software-related and technology-related agreements. Um, we also um, assist in the software selection process by uh, drafting uh, RFPs, requests for proposals, and um, assisting software selection consultants um, on behalf of clients and customers. Uh, so, yeah, we, we you know, we we very much do have our, our pulse on um, the software technology industry from a legal perspective and from a just a general technology and business perspective as well. So uh, we hope to offer some insights today into both the software selection process, uh, really from kind of a general perspective, and then uh, from a more detailed perspective, some of the cloud and uh, uh, software as a service issues that uh, uh, customers and, and clients of ours typically encounter. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to this. I will uh, mention also that I know that most of the uh, software selection work that that you do you know, involves some larger companies uh, with uh, you know much um, on a much grander scale than some smaller law firms. And some people say, well, how is software licensing relevant to a smaller law practice? But I'll suggest that there are things that you'll talk about today that really make this an appropriate topic, not only for large companies and large law firms, but Main Street and smaller law firms as well. And i also like to point out that uh, not long ago we did have uh, one of our IT uh, consultants from Texas talk about disaster preparedness and having an off-site or cloud setup. And one of the things that we often talk about is security. And um, as our um, Yehuda Kagan, who was on this earlier show, is referencing, mentioned that uh, just as you know, someone could break into your house, your security system is, is limited by you know, what people will go through. And he suggested the same with software in the cloud. Uh, one of the things that we talked about, just to give you some background, is that many people are concerned about ethics and security, and they've seen different things on different legal listservs. Um, and just a general fear is out there of uh, running into an ethical violation by using cloud computing software. And I've suggested in the past and have repeated this many times that uh, more and more efforts are made for safety and security. And we have so much insurance out there in the world anyways. Um, and my suggestion is that when you do cloud computing and, and follow along with software selection and different things appropriately and dot the, t, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's, that really this is a safe and standard practice. And um, you know, many larger companies you know, outside of law uh, use all of this information, and they have sensitive information as well. So uh, I, I think we're just sort of helping and explaining on to some people how this is a safe and appropriate method. So uh, moving forward, which topic do you want to take first? 
Well, you know, I think let's transition into um, the, the cloud concepts and some of the things that you need to be careful of and some of the general issues that you just talked about. We'll expand on those a little bit. And then right. after we've got a general understanding of that, I think what we want to talk about or what I'll talk about is uh, general software selection practices, best practices, and the methodology that is typically employed um, in software selection. And I think many of the, the points that you raised just now, Nick, are incredibly important um, generally and specifically for law firms. Um, you know, I think I think every one of the biggest benefits of cloud computing is, and one of the, the main distinctions when you're negotiating and drafting these types of agreements is the fact that you know it's all about data protection and data security, and that you know the draw um, for a lot of, of small to mid-sized firms or even large firms is that you know it re the concept of the cloud and software as a service in general it really takes a lot of the burden um, off of your in-house IT professionals. Um, if you're a smaller firm, you can eliminate that uh, that cost almost in its entirety. You know, there's a lot of solutions out there from you know Dropbox to Gmail, and more and more um, the people that I interact with on a daily basis in my practice, other attorneys, other law firms. Um, these are solutions that they're really starting to take advantage of. You know, I mean, it really cuts down on costs. It um, it it really streams streamlines um, the, your ability to provide services to your clients. And one of the nice things about it is that it makes you instantly um, competitive with some of the very large firms that you may be trying to compete with. And I think one of the advantages of being kind of a smaller to mid-sized firm is that you have the ability to quickly implement these these products and these solutions um, into your practice on a daily basis. Um, you're able to absorb the cost. You know, I mean, if you're dealing with a, a 1,000 you know person firm that's uh, you know stuck in the Outlook and Microsoft environment. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of cost that has been invested into those systems, and the desire to change may not be there. Um, and if there is a desire to change, everybody's going to be on board. It's going to go through various committees, and it's going to take a long time. You know, whereas if you're you know a 15-person law firm, you can make the switch to Gmail on your back end, still have your domain uh, available to your 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 clients. So you know, all is real seamless. Um, and then. You know, you you've got your email everywhere. You don't need a, a VPN. So I mean, you know, the advantages of, of of this model are very clear. I think a lot of attorneys are really hesitant to to switch over because you know the fact that their data is no longer on site. Um, I think one of the, the ways to get around that apprehension or aversion is really to look at the the contracts that are in place. Um, you know, the click to accept agreements that you're signing. Uh, with these vendors and, and really understand what their data protection policies are, what, what the level of encryption is, and then you've got to go individually and look, you know, to the, the state that you're licensed in and to see what, you know, your your uh, your your ethical obligations are to your client. And I think, really, if you look at this practically, and you know, I haven't reviewed every, uh, you know, every state's uh, you know bar regulations with respect to data protection and confidentiality and, and, and things like that, but you know. You've got confidential information on your desk every day. Your cleaning people come in. You've got, you know, depending on your office setup. I mean, you know, there's there's people that have access to your office and your confidential files, um, and it really, you know, it, it may not be very different than you know storing your files online in the cloud and having some kind of incidental, you know, people, you know, having just some very rudimentary access to them, and they, they probably aren't even looking at them. They're just uh, you know, doing some kind of management with respect to the data. So it's not really, in my opinion, that that much different. Um, so I think the aversion and the apprehension associated with doing that really um, isn't justified in every case. Um, let's transition into just kind of some of the 
the general issues that are associated with these types of agreements. And, you know, I think really you know, this this talk is really geared towards um, more of a kind of a, a, a mid-size entity that is going to be transitioning um, uh, from a legacy system that automates or, or you know, manages the business flows and processes um, from kind of a, the legacy system being an on-site or an on-premise model to this cloud environment. And this could be, you know, a, a 50 to 100 person firm that's uh, going to transition into, you know, from Outlook into something else or some kind of a document management system, um, customer relationship management or client relationship management system. So you know, that's that's the the gist of the conversation today, you know, I mean, there's typically two types of cloud agreements that you're going to see, and this is what we're going to talk about, Nick, is is uh, one type. Um, the first type, which we will not talk about today, is the click-to-accept agreement or the, the click-wrap agreement, shrink-wrap agreement. And this kind of agreement is really more appropriate for, um, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a lower-end product that, you know, $100, $150 range, that kind of thing. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about a standalone agreement that's on paper that needs to be signed by two people that, you know, you're going to negotiate the price and you're going to um, negotiate certain provisions to make you more comfortable. So that's that's where we're going to go today. And then after we talk about that, like I said, we're going to talk about uh, the software selection process. Um, I think one of the, the things that we need to do first is really make sure we're all on the same page um, with what we're talking about. And we probably want to define, you know, what we mean when we say cloud, what we mean when we say SaaS, software as a service. They're in some ways interchangeable. There's some kind of, there, there's a little bit of a distinction between the two. Cloud computing really is, Nick, the wave of the future. Um, I read the other day, and I think it was the Wall Street Journal, um, or maybe, actually, no, excuse me, it was a, a Gartner report, um, that by 2013, 50% of software is going to be delivered via uh, software as a service or a cloud model. So, yeah, this is something that is going to become more common. Uh, the on-premise model is probably going to uh, start to decline even more in the future. So, you know, this is something that people need to become familiar with and understand the risks uh, associated with um, you know, using this type of software. So, the cloud, what is it? I mean, at, at its most basic concept, it's really what we call use and access um, to a multiple server-based computer resource network, okay? So what does that mean? Um, you know, cloud users typically are going to access these servers using their computer, using a notebook, using an iPad or smartphone or other device. Um, their data is going to be stored not locally, but in the cloud, so in the Internet, on a server somewhere, all right? Um, again, this morning, as I was coming in on the train, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they were talking about Google's uh, new um, Chrome Chromebook or Chrome Netbook, I think is what it is. It's a pared-down computer. It costs $400, and it doesn't have any kind of local, uh, the ability to locally store um, any kind of applications or anything like that. They're all stored on Google's server. So this is what we mean by the cloud. You're not going to download and install applications on your own device, all the uh, the processing store and storage is going to be maintained um, on the server. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that if you're going to be using this type of service, um, you have to have an internet connection. So yeah, that can be incredibly problematic if uh, all of your information, your client management software, your email, and everything is just you know, it's 
not available locally at all. So when you open up your computer, you know, you try to access what you know what formerly would have been Outlook um, with all your PST files and whatever um, right there for you. It's not going to be the same. You know, in most cases, it's going to be somewhere else. So you've got to make sure you've got um, good cell service, good internet service to be able to do this. And that could be an advantage or a disadvantage depending on on how you're looking at this. Marcus, what this reminds me of is the show that we did on net neutrality, which brings up a whole other set of questions. And um, some of us, I think, have experienced different um, levels of service with different providers. I thank you for the definition. We're going to pause really quickly for a first set of breaks, and then we're going to come back. And now that we're all on the same page with what we're talking about with cloud, we're going to dig a little further in. Our first commercial sponsor is Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. If your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property rights, you should find out if you're in hot water or not. Chicagoland attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity and guard against trademark infringement, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme at 708-444-7900. That telephone number again is 708-444-7900. Or visit nkdlaw.com for more information. Our second commercial sponsor is Mary Erlane of Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated. If you haven't met Mary Erlane yet, then you should listen up because she will help you make more money. Mary is well, no, well known all over the Chicagoland area for her executive coaching and unique abilities in helping people with connecting the dots and removing the barriers to business goals. Mary is the president of Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated, and these renowned coaching and consulting services are available to businesses, associations, organizations, and teams looking to bring about measurable results. Call Mary today at 630-768-1422. That's 630-768-1422. Or visit Peak Marketing online at www.peakmsi.com. Our third commercial sponsor is Law Publicist Communications. Law Publicist Communications is a legal marketing and public relations agency serving Chicagoland lawyers and business professionals. Many people who hire us hire us to write their marketing material, blogs, and to promote and manage their webinars and events. We really are a full-service agency, and you'd be surprised how many ways we can help you. Give us a call at 312-505-2604. Telephone number again, 312-505-2604. Now, if you have a guest selection or a suggestion for a Law Talk Radio broadcast, please let us know. Drop us a note on our website or on our Facebook page. Simply go to Facebook and search for Law Talk Radio in the search bar. Now back to our guest, Marcus Stephen Harris, from the Chicago Technology and Software Law Firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. We were talking about uh, SAS and the cloud. We have an operating definition now. Um, we're with the cloud, so let's get right back into it. Yeah, so you know we're all on the same page with what we mean when we say cloud. Um, I'm going to use the term SaaS uh, somewhat interchangeably, and I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to do that. I think, though, you need to conceptualize that SaaS is really the delivery model. Um, so it's software as a service as opposed to software um, on a disk, software that you're going to load onto your local computer or onto your servers and use on-site. So you know, when we talk about SaaS and we talk about cloud, essentially the same thing with you know, some minor minor uh, clarifications and differences. And uh, you know, some technologists would probably you know, argue with me that it's the same thing. But for our purposes today, I think it's fair to say that we can use those interchangeably. Um, the other definition or, or, or 
concept that I think is relevant to the conversation today is this concept of Web 2.0. So you've got cloud, you've got SaaS, and then you've got Web 2.0. Um, it, you and I, Nick, have talked about the concept of Web 2.0 in the past and, and uh, some of the, the legal implications of it. And really, you know, Web 2.0 is simply uh, this kind of um, it, it's, it's more kind of like a Facebook time uh, type of a website where you've got um, uh, user-generated content. Okay, and where this where this is applicable to the cloud is you look at something like um, Salesforce.com, and uh, the name of their app store is escaping me uh, now, but they've got they've got a service where um, they actively promote. Um, software developers and, and you know small startups um, they 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 encourage them to provide uh widgets and uh kind of mm. collateral projects for their actual enterprise product that's delivered on a SaaS model okay so this is one of the advantages of using SaaS is that it can be in some respects a very dynamic product so you know you can have suggestions to modify the system and those those suggestions can be um implemented by the vendor and provided um across the board to other uh end users um, so if you've got a really good way to use that product in connection with, you know, generating reports or, or something like that, you know, that, that can then be um, implemented across the user base. And there are pluses and there are minuses to that, but um, generally it's kind of a good thing. But I think in the end, you know, one of, one of the things that we see a lot of these vendors doing uh, today um, is that they're really building in a lot more support for um, customizable applications, and they're going uh, to great efforts to create ecosystems of technology partners uh, for related applications, kind of like in the Salesforce.com model. Um, essentially what this does, though, is that um, it makes it more difficult to switch from one provider to another. Okay, That's a good thing, and, and it can also be a bad thing. And I think when you look at these agreements, you've got to account for that and have an exit strategy. And one of the things that we say just in in you know law in general and certainly with respect to these types of contracts is you've always got to look for an exit strategy you've got to plan for the end um from the beginning and you know when you're doing that um you're going to be fine for the most part i think traditionally nick um you know the saas model um really kind of evolves out of the on-premise model. And most of the software te and technology attorneys that we deal with on a daily basis, what they do, and we see these contracts from vendors all the time, is that they simply modify an on-premise contract and they convert it into a SaaS agreement. Okay? Um, so, you know, unfortunately, I think simply giving a standard software license agreement, kind of a nip here and a, and a, a tuck there, it just really doesn't cut it. Essentially, you're not really accounting for the dynamic ability of SaaS and, and some of the really uh, SaaS-specific um, issues that are going to come up. Um, in a SaaS transaction, um, application availability, the, the software availability, uh, and performance and monitoring is uh, really crucial. You know, so therefore, the SaaS contract really needs to include service-level guarantees. It needs to have service-level stipulations. And it most absolutely should spell out minimum levels of acceptable performance, um, including response times, um, things like uptimes, and you know what constitutes customer satisfaction and breach and these types of things. So those are all very critical, and that's one of the, the main differences between, I'd say, a SaaS agreement and a traditional software license. Um, and as we talk more today, um, we'll see how this is really applicable to the, the negotiation of the SaaS contract. 
one of the one of the things that um oh, never mind I have a thought but it passed I'm sure you'll answer it go ahead <laughs> sure so when you're negotiating a cloud agreement or you're considering a cloud product um, there are really four major issues that you're going to, to to deal with there are a lot of sub issues but today for our purposes we'll, we'll cover these four major issues you're going to be concerned with the service level agreement and we'll talk about that in a second you're very much going to be concerned with data processing and storage, which directly impacts attorneys and attorneys considering these types of models. You're going to be um, very concerned with infrastructure and security. Okay, um, This is more the hardware aspect of it. Okay, And then you're always going to be concerned, and SaaS agreements aren't really any different, but, but it really is important in this particular situation. You're going to be concerned with your vendor relationship. How viable is that vendor? Are they going to go bankrupt if um, you know, you're no longer satisfied with their service? How are you going to transition out of that relationship? You remember, all of your data is, is stored um, in that person's, on that person's servers. You know? So you've got, to, you've got to figure out a nice transition to get that, that data to another vendor. You know, who's going to pay for that? How much is it going to cost? How detailed is it going to be? Is any data going to, going to be lost? Okay. I have a question that jumped off the top of my head. Um, with that data being in that other person's server, what about backups and, and redundancy if the one fails? Is that something that gets built into these agreements? It's absolutely something that needs to be built into those agreements, and we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Um, let's talk about the service level agreement. Okay. Do you have any idea, Nick, what the service level agreement is? It's a concept. Well, it's incorporated it's basic, into quite simple. The first, just the initial, your initial agreement with them that says what they're going to do. Essentially, right. So, I mean, it's it's probably one of the most important aspects of of the contract, and what it what it deals with specifically are uptimes, okay, and performance guarantees. That's what I was going to ask you. What are these uptimes? Because we hear about these, I'm not sure everyone knows what that means. Well, uptime simply means how how much um, or how often uh, the service is going to be available to you, okay? You know, it, 100% is probably not realistic, but certainly what you're going to want is, you know, the gold standard is the five nines, okay? So 99.999. Um, sometimes you only get four of those nines, and that's that's okay too, but anything less than that is going, um, you need to kind of raise your eyebrow at, okay? Um, but there are a lot of subtleties within that kind of a commitment and what it means, So things that you need to consider um, are the actual uptime guarantee itself. So is it 99.9? Is it 98.9? Is it 95.0? What is it? Okay. The higher the number, the better off you are, because remember, this is how available your data is going to be. You also need to be very concerned with performance. You know, how how fast is that data going to be traveling over the network? I mean, you have to have a, a really high Internet connection to be able to, to do this seamlessly. And that may or may not be, you know, dependent on the actual vendor. That may be your, your responsibility. But, um, you know, whatever is the vendor's responsibility, you want to make sure they live up to that obligation and have something that's going to reasonably address your needs. You don't want to be um, using, you know, some kind of a document creation software package that is in the cloud. You know, you've got some big deal that you're working on, a multi-million dollar contract for your most important client, and, you know, this thing could be taking forever to, to do whatever it needs to do. Yeah, that that's you need to, there needs to be a remedy for that. There needs to be a response time. Um, 
So we've got performance and response times. We've got error correction times. Those two things different are different. So um, response time is how fast they're going to actually respond to your your ticket, your issue. So you know you call up customer support or you log uh, a, a, you know a, a ticket within the package itself. Um, how fast are they going to get back to you? How fast are they going to acknowledge that it's a problem? You want very rapid reaction. And then the second is, how fast are they actually going to correct the problem? You want a contractual obligation on their part that they will actually you know, be able to correct the problem and that they will do it quickly. Um, you know, there are certain vendor issues associated with that. It's hard to obligate yourself contractually uh, to, to fix an issue that you don't even know, you know what it is at the time you're contracting. Um, mm-hmm. So those, those bring up some, um, some fun negotiation topics. Um, the other thing that you need to consider within the concept of the service level agreement is infrastructure and security. So, you know, what happens if a server goes down? Are there going to be additional servers? Is there another data center somewhere that's going to come online immediately? You, you, know, you need to ask these types of questions, and you need to make sure you know what's going on. And this is just good business sense. You know, I mean, if you're going to have mission-critical uh, data being stored on someone's server and that server goes down, you want to make uh, sure that, you know, there's another server on the other side of the world or, you know, on the other side of the country that's going to uh, immediately go online and protect your, your information. Mm-hmm. You know, I when I went with my cloud, actually I have – my Microsoft Outlook is actually in, in the cloud on a Microsoft Exchange server. Okay. Um, and I was unaware that you could even do that because I thought that might – you know, but a lot of Microsoft products were just – Right there, and I remember going. To, I had a lot of similar questions because I have non, you know, sensitive things that are email. Of course, you mentioned Dropbox earlier, which is a good place to, uh, you know, put sensitive information. And I would suggest that things like email passwords are not always good things to be emailing back and forth. Um, you know, there are better, more secure ways. But I remember going through and had some of these questions, and I wish I would have known that uh, at the time that I could find a find an attorney to take a look at these things. Uh, so, you know, even the smaller uh, law firm or a solo practitioner could really benefit from just having someone have another set of eyes um, on on these agreements. And my, my question to you is, how likely are the people offering these service level agreements going to uh, modify their agreements. How, I mean, if you're a small person, I mean, you just move on to the next provider. Well, it really depends. I mean, you know, you obviously have more leverage and more money you're spending, and the bigger the deal is. You know, I mean, they're going to be more willing to to negotiate with you if you're spending money with them. They're going to be more willing to uh, reduce the price that you're paying. Um, so, you know, if you're a sole practitioner. Um, or a very small firm, you may really not have uh, too much leverage. But I think you know, it, it's more of a concern then when you don't to really read that agreement very carefully and to really understand you know, what it is you're getting into. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a variety of issues, and I think you have to push back if the agreement is unreasonable. Um, even if you don't have a lot of leverage, I mean, you, you know, you need to know the vendor that you're working with. And I think the bigger the vendor. Yeah, the more reasonable the terms are probably going to be. Okay, one of the problems with the SaaS model is that it's kind of a take it or leave it model, to some extent, and they really try to kind of to 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 perpetuate that that perception because they don't want to spend a lot of time negotiating these documents. They just want people to sign them, you know. So you you do need to push back, and if it's unreasonable, you really you know you really need to try to modify that language. And I find in my experience, um, even in our own you know 
SAS-related agreements, that if there's something unreasonable in the contract, and if you explain it to them in a way that is non-confrontational, non-aggressive, and, and just really makes a good business case, that they, they most likely will amend it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's things like, you know, what, data processing and storage, for example, okay? You've got all of your, your data on this on this entity's servers. You need to make uh, sure, in fact, that you retain ownership of that data, that there's a provision in that contract that says, hey, that data is mine. You know, I, it doesn't matter that it's on your servers and it's going to be on there for many years, but, you know, I retain control over it. I can get it whenever I want to uh, with, you know, reasonable written notice or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's, it's, you really need to, to state clearly in your contract uh, that you do have ownership of that data. It needs to be affirmed and it needs to be agreed upon. Um, you, know, you don't want any ambiguity associated with that. Okay. Uh, another comment that I'd like to make, and then we have to pause for a short break, and then we'll be back, is if you have concerns, and I know that I see people, I see lawyers on the ABA solo says listserv all the time saying, no, it's not safe, don't do it, you're breaching ethical this or that, or they found some case somewhere that said this is a bad thing to do, I would suggest this. Take a look at your professional liability policy because your, your malpractice policy is of, of utmost importance because if you do run afoul and something happens, that is where you're going to uh, have the biggest problem if your malpractice uh, carrier doesn't cover cloud. And I'm sure that most of all of them are you know likely to do so. If you have a question about this, take your malpractice policy, read it over, take a look at the policy of what you're signing up for, and find a lawyer like Marcus to take a look at it. And then you have, you, you have your peace of mind. You've done your due diligence. You should be just fine. But, you know, that's don't take my word for it. Give Marcus a call. We're going to pause now for uh, more little uh, sponsor breaks, and then we're going to be back talking, uh, r- wrapping up on cloud and SAS and then getting into software selection. And our fourth commercial sponsor comes from Get Clients Now and Jim Thompson. If you need more clients, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. His name is Jim Thompson, and his program is called Get Clients Now. He'll help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenue. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Please visit Lawyers Marketing Resource. That's their website. Again, LawyersMarketingResource.com. And also check out the testimonials there and see what people have to say about the Get Clients Now program and working with Jim Thompson. You can also email him at J-E-T, like Jet, J-E-T, at MidwestConsultants.net. That's plural, Jet at J-E-T, at MidwestConsultants.net. And our fifth commercial uh, sponsor is credit damage expert George Finder. Your credit score is a valuable asset. Credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount to damage to your credit score. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder is available for consulting on damaged credit reputation. Please visit creditdamageexpert.com for more information. Again, that's creditdamageexpert.com. And finally, from Pleading Drafter Brand Services. If your office is disorganized and you're staring at headaches that only another lawyer would understand, you can count on Pleading Drafter Brand Services to help you get your office in order. Many people hire us to help with billing, managing client files, making sense of technology, and of course, legal research, writing, and filing. We are a full-service agency with law student and attorney staff ready to help you. Please call Nick at 312 505 
312-505-2604 to find out how we can help. 312-505-2604. Getting back to our show, we want to quick remind our listeners that if you find our broadcast links in your social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or whatever other social network you're using, many people find our programs on their friends' pages. So go ahead and share our programming. We've had a tremendous success in uh, sharing great content and many guests with so many people because people participate so well in social media and social networking. So we do appreciate all of you who have shared our programming and encourage you to tune in and check out what we are bringing to you from time to time. Again, please give us your suggestions. We always listen. All right, back to our show. We're talking with Marcus Harris um, about cloud computing, and then we're going to move on to software selection. Yeah, so we've got, I've got three more points about just data in general. We've got the disposition of your data. Um, and what I mean by that is you need to, um, before you get into these things, these, these software as a service agreements or cloud agreements, you want to think about vendor lock-in, okay? Um, and what, what I mean is it is important for you to know in advance how you will possibly switch to a different solution once your relationship with this particular cloud computing service provider is over. You know, it can be over for a variety of reasons. You, you know, you don't pay your bill, you um, decide you don't like their service anymore, you want to upgrade to something different, transition to a new service. What happens to your data? You know, you need to make sure that you that is is spelled out with detail in the contract because if it's not, they may not have any obligation to provide you back, you know, your data. They may say, "Well, you know what? You should have been uh, backing it up the whole time." And, you know, and if you didn't, you know, well, yeah, you, you, you could be in a whole mess of trouble at that point. So you need to think about these things in advance. Uh, data breaches, the contract needs to cover uh, the provider's obligations in the event that uh, your data is accessed inappropriately, um, either by you know, a provider's employee, a third party, whatever. Uh, there needs to be language in there that addresses that situation. One of kind of the, the, the sleeper provisions in these agreements, or one of the sleeper issues, Nick, is really the location of the data, Okay. A variety of legal issues can arise um, if your data resides in a cloud computing provider's data center in another country. All right, think about that for a second. You know, you are providing services uh, to Illinois clients in Illinois. Your data for all of those clients is stored in India. There's a data breach in India. What do you do? You know, what law are you going to leverage to be able to get your data back? Um, you want to know in advance what's going on. So, you know, these are things that you need to read about. Um, you want to make sure you know which law applies. You need to have a plan of action if there is some sort of a data breach. Uh, you want to make sure that you know where your data is. Wow, that's a really scary suggestion. <laughs> what, do you say, what do you do? Uh, I say find the nearest bed and jump under it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, you know. I mean, these are things that people don't think about. I mean, and these are things that you need to think about. You can be, you know, doing something very simple, using you know some kind of uh, you know online storage service for your all your client data, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got some weird issue in Pakistan that you have to deal with. Um, you need to think about export control regulations um, for secure data, you know, encrypted data, that kind of thing. The uh, U.S. government doesn't like those to be uh, stored in other countries. And if you know, if, if you store it locally, you know, you think you're in a data center here in you know Chicagoland area, and all of a sudden you find out, you know, you're in uh, I don't know some prohibited country, that could be a problem for you too. So there's a lot of traps for the unwary. A few more points on the cloud computing issues, and then we can transition over to. Uh, uh, this other issue of uh, software selection. You want to think about what happens to your data if um, the vendor 
the service provider uh, receives some sort of a subpoena. You know, um, if there's a government request for data, how is your data going to be handled? Are they going to be required to notify you? Um, if they do disclose information to the go a government entity, are they only going to disclose, you know, the minimum amount of information necessary? Are they going to handle it all over? I mean, this has huge implications for attorney-client privilege, uh, confidentiality issues. Um, these need to be addressed in your uh, contract. Um, one of the other things that we need to think about is the concept of a data center audit. Okay, now this this may not really be available to a smaller uh, customer uh, of the service provider, but certainly for a larger customer, if you've got if you're, you know a 300 person firm, 100 person firm, and um, you know, you're storing a lot of sensitive and confidential information with this this vendor, you want to have the ability to go in every once in a while and look at the data center, uh, make sure that it's being run appropriately, that you know it's not some fly by night operation, that type of thing. You know, there are certain standards that are applicable to this, certain certifications that can be had, and certain reports that you can provide, that can be provided to you. And there's a whole uh, set of standards for how this is conducted and, and what happens. Um, and if you don't know those types of things, you need to have an attorney skilled in these types of co uh, contracts. Uh, one of uh, the other things that we need to think about is the concept of disaster recovery and what happens, how they're going to deal with that. What if there's a flood? You know, what if there's a fire? Um, you know, what happens to your data. So these things need to be accounted for in the uh, the contract. A couple of other things, Nick, that I think are really important. You know, we haven't talked a lot about price. The pricing model for a software as a service is usually done kind of on a, a, a monthly basis. It's it's not uh, this perpetual model where you pay one fee in the beginning and you have the rights to use the software um, until you, know, you terminate the contract or the contract is breached. Um, it's usually you know you pay on a monthly basis, a quarterly basis, something like that. Even though it is that way, you need to think about what you're paying for. You need to think about price caps if you can negotiate those. You want to make sure that um, you know those fees aren't unnecessarily increased for no reason. And you want to know exactly, like I said, what you're getting for that money. Are you getting a certain number of users? If you add additional users, what you know what's the fee for that? Those types of things. One of the other things that's really specific to the SaaS environment, this cloud computing environment, is the concept of functionality. When I say functionality, I mean the, so the software product itself. Okay. Usually in a contract, the definition of the software, what you're actually purchasing, is incredibly vague. Um, you know, you need to make sure that it's updated, that uh, functionality is being added by the vendor on a regular basis. You, you need to make sure that those things are happening. You also need to account for the fact that, you know, what if you like the way everything is working? You come in the next day, and the software has actually been upgraded to, you know, the next model number, and the one piece of functionality that you use is no longer available because, you know, 90% of the customer base just didn't find it necessary, and they, the vendor doesn't want to support it anymore. You know, you, you need to think about these concepts. You need to account for them in the contract and make sure that you're not bitten unnecessarily uh, by something like that happening. Um, three more points on this. Termination is very important in the context of a SaaS agreement. You want to make sure that you can get out of the contract with reasonable notice. You don't want to have to pay any kind of penalty fees, uh, termination fees, or the like. Um, you need to, to know what happens if that vendor goes out of business and you know what, what happens to your data. You want to know um, if you can assign the contract, if you're bought out, if you merge with another entity, if you change your name or you become a different entity, you know, what happens to the contract, um, who has rights. You don't want to, um, you know, for one reason you're an LLC one day, then you're a corporation the next for, you know, a variety of tax reasons or whatever happens, um, you know, and now you've got to uh, 
purchase the software again, that type of thing. Um, you want to account for that in the contract. And you also don't want the service provider to, to be able to assign that contract to a totally different entity. I mean, you've contracted with the service provider because you did some due diligence, hopefully, and you feel comfortable with them. Um, you, know, you don't want to uh, now be dealing with somebody else. The final um, issue associated with cloud computing that we'll talk about today is vendor outsourcing. It's very common in, in the SaaS environment, the cloud environment, for um, these providers to actually outsource a lot of the services that they are providing. I mean, on the back end, a lot of times they use Amazon um, you know, or whoever, um, and you may not even know that. Um, you want to make sure that the vendor that you're contracting with is primarily responsible for any um, acts or omissions of that uh, independent contractor that they're using, the consultant they're using, whoever they're using. You want one throat to choke. Um, so, so that's a very brief overview of, of some kind of common issues in the cloud um, computing environment. Um, any questions about anything I said, Nick? No, I think that there's so much information there. The one thing that I will suggest to people is if you have a question about any of this, give Marcus a call or do some research. Find find some answers because um, a lot of this, I, I can just, knowing other people I know who do licensing agreements and different work, this is so niche. Um, there's so many issues here that are not global. So you really need to do find someone who specializes in this. We're going to pay to go quick pause. Uh, and here's some messages of our practice management resources, and then we're going to go through software selection. And for our first of all, practice management resource, I want to tell you about the ABA Publishing and ABA Web Store. This week's title, we're reading this week's title from last week again because I think it's a really good title. It's a portable guide to federal conspiracy law, tactics and strategies for criminal and civil cases, second edition. Conspiracy is a word that connotes intrigue, complexity, and headaches for the unprepared lawyer. You need information on federal conspiracy law quickly and easily. You need trial tactics and strategies and case law to back up your arguments. A portable guide to federal conspiracy law, second edition, gives you the information you need when you need it. That's again from ABA Publishing and the ABA Web Store. Secondly, quickly, from Law Bulletin Publishing Company. When you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you'll receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for those lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for those lawyers in flux in their careers. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published in the Attorneys in Transition site, and I do hope that you stop by, visit, and leave your comments at attorneysintransition.com. Now back to our show. We're going to uh, wrap up here with our last segment on software selection. Um, before we get started, I'm going to suggest this. Since we've got 15 minutes uh, or less than that remaining, let's go through this uh, from maybe a um, you know, a bird's eye view, and then I think that there may be another show that we can do where uh, we can maybe field some questions about people looking at different software. Uh, I think that based on this discussion we're having today, I'm going to try to write and publish more information about uh, cloud computing and about software selection and things so, so more out there can get this information because I just think that a lot of people don't know a lot of this information, and this is really good stuff. Well, thanks, Nick. Let's talk about the software selection process, and like you said, we'll do it from, from kind of a bird's eye view because there's a lot of information here. Um, typically, when we get involved in the software selection process, it's typically at the end. Um, it's in the RFP process or it's in the contract negotiation process. There's a whole industry associated with software selection, and there are a number of software selection uh, consultants and software selection firms that are out there that assist you know, large companies with the acquisition of uh, very large and expensive software products. I'm going to go through some 
some of that methodology today uh, relatively quickly, and we're not going to get too in-depth, but I think there's some value here. And I think you know, for the people listening, to the extent they're lawyers on small firms or, or you know, mid-sized firms or even big firms, um, you know, this is the same methodology that Fortune 500 companies use, and this is the same methodology really that you should use. Um, you know, even if you're just a one-person one firm, this methodology is going to serve you well, and um, it's really going to help you um, select the right software product for you. So the first step is really getting started. Okay, um, but what companies do when they're uh, beginning the software selection process is they set up a project team. Um, if it's a company of any size, what you want is you want people from all areas of the company uh, to be represented in this team, you know, 15 people or so. Um, you really want them to identify what the problems are with the legacy system that they have. You know, and the legacy system can be, you know, some ancient email system that everybody's using, some ancient document creation software, uh, report generating software, whatever it is, accounting software. You know, what what don't you like about it? What do you need to change? You know, th that's the process. It's identifying really, you know, what you have um, and what you want. So um, along those lines, and this is really for kind of a larger company, but I still think there's some value and some application to smaller companies. You need to document your IT infrastructure. Um, you know, if you're a larger company, this means, you know, well, we have, you know, this type of computer on this type of operating system. It runs, you know, in part of our part of our company. It runs in another part of a company. Uh, we use this different system here, whatever it is. I mean, if it's a five-person firm, you can say, well, three of us are on Macs. Um, you know, some of us use Blackberry, some of us use iPhone. Some of you, you need to know this kind of thing because the software that you're choosing needs to be compatible with everything. Um, you need to document the applications that you have, the specific software, you know, what it runs on, what it doesn't run on, what, what features of it are valuable, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. And then one of the most important steps in this process is documenting your business processes, your business flows, uh, how you do business. Um, you always want your software to be able to adapt to the extent it can to the way you do business. You don't want to adapt the way you do business to the, the particular software that you purchase. Um, so in this preliminary step, the final the final process of this is really determining where you want to go. So you need to prioritize your requirements. Um, you need to think about the software product that you want, think about um, what you need from that product, where you want to go. You know, I mean, do you need to have remote access? Um, do you need it to be Mac compatible? Does it need, you, you know, you want these things, you want to be forward thinking in what you're doing. You want to make sure that, um, you know, you're not going to have to purchase another software program in a couple of years. You want to make sure that this is a be-all and end-all solution for you, at least for, you know, the near future. Um, so you do that by really prioritizing your requirements, figuring out what those requirements are, figuring out what your wants are, what your needs are, and um, you know, what your nice-to-haves would be. The second step of the process is the selection process. And in this process, what you do is you identify potential vendors. And typically what you want to do is you want to narrow that list down to at least three. Three is a good number. Um, you know, you don't want to have to decide between, you know, 
seven, ten, it's just too much work to do. I mean, if you're selecting a customer relationship management software program or a client relationship management software program, you know, you really want to find people that, if you're an attorney, that you know, vendors that are lawyer specific that deal with the type of firm that you deal with. You want to figure out: Do you want a SaaS model? Do I want an implemented on-premise model? Um, you know, you need to prioritize your requirements. Find the the three vendors that really seem to uh, cater towards the niche that you're in, and go from there. The second step of the process, and this can be a very detailed process depending on the size of the company, um, or it can be a not so detailed process. Um, you know, if you're a five-person firm, it's not going to be that detailed. If you're, you know, 50 people, it might be much more. And that that step is to create an RFP, and, and really. You know, you want to do this just just to nail down what your requirements are. You want to send it out there. You want people to respond, and you want people to compete for your business. You know, this isn't obviously going to be applicable for you know a one-person firm that is just going to you know spend fifty dollars on a Google email account. Um, you know, this is for something a, a little bit larger. If you're going to transition your whole accounting program or software, your you know your your uh, case management software, whatever that is, I mean, an RFP is an ideal solution because it really narrows down the issues for you. Typically, for an RFP, Nick, there are four parts. You've got a description of the process that needs to be followed in the RFP, so the response process. Okay, you want to provide the vendor or potential vendor a detailed picture of the organization. And you want to provide that vendor with a description of how that organization, organization, or excuse me, organization operates and its IT infrastructure. Okay. Um, and the last step of this is how how you would like to operate. So where you want to be, what you need, what you want, what are the must-haves, what are the nice-to-haves. Okay. So you, you send this out to a few vendors, um, they fill it out, and it comes back. So the next step in the process is um, you, know, you have RFP creation, RFP send out. Now it's the RFP analysis. So you want to essentially look at the responses, eliminate proposals that don't respond to your must-haves, um, eliminate proposals um, that are incomplete. You, you want to evaluate each proposal based on the number of wants um, that it provides. And I will tell you that typically cost is one of the, the last things that, that my clients are going to uh, be concerned with. And I'll tell you why. It seems counterintuitive, but you really want to think about you know the functionality that you're getting and how well these software products are going to meet your particular needs because almost all vendors are going to be willing to negotiate the price with you. So um, you know, in the beginning, we typically don't focus on cost or price unless there's a huge discrepancy between you know you've got a $500 product versus a you know, $5,000 product. Um, but you know, to the extent that the prices are all kind of significant, it, it's really they're all going to come down. I mean, I think the markup, you know, list price software is is kind of a phantom number, and people can come down twenty percent, fifty percent with ease, typically in my experience. So, the second step here after the RFP is reference checks, um, and this is something very important to do. Just like if you're going to be hiring a new attorney, you want to check uh, or a new employee rather, you want to check uh, the references. So here, you know, you ask the vendor to provide two to three companies um, and a single point of contact at each one that you can that you can call that you may be able to visit with. Um, you know, your job really is to get this person to provide you with um, additional people in their organization who can speak about various aspects of the software with you. One of the keys is to ask open-ended questions. Uh, and these questions are always going to start with, you know, hey, look, we feel that this uh, is the right system for us. 
Um, just got a, a few simple questions for you. Um, you know, were there any surprises during the implementation of this particular product that uh, we can learn from? Um, and you know, that really should start the conversation going. You want to take plenty of notes, um, and you really want to learn what to watch out for and you know what to avoid uh, with this particular product. Because I think you know, the, the typical customer they're going to refer you to is probably going to be a satisfied customer. But yeah, that's why you need to ask these open-ended questions so you can make sure that uh, you're really getting good, um, good, good answers and you're getting a lot of value from this. The next step of the process, I'm going to combine these two. You've got demonstration planning um, and demonstration of the software. And we just in, in the industry, these are called demos. Um, you want the vendors to come and show you what the software can actually do. Um, you know, it's typically the software package. Um, are going to the software package needs to be demonstrated in a way so that uh, you know it's it's demonstrating the critical functionality that you want. Uh, you want to make sure that it's going to satisfy your business requirements. Um, you want to be very well prepared for this. Um, you want to know what those business requirements are going into this, or you're not going to get a lot of value from the demonstration. You know, another thing on that is that you know every feature or function that you've defined as an absolute requirement in your RFP needs to be demonstrated to you in detail. Um, you know, after the demonstration, you know, you're you're going to compile all that information, figure out, you know, if it really works for you, what you saw. This is why you need to take detailed notes. Um, compare one one demonstrated product to the other, and figure out which one is the, is is going to be that best for you. Once you've narrowed it down, one of the critical elements is if you can do this, is to actually go on site to a particular customer and see how they actually use the software. This is really more applicable in some in some senses to, you know, some of the larger software products that, that we're involved in, um, you know, large warehouse management systems and things like that. You know, you want to go see how that warehouse is managed in the context of, um, you know, legal software. Um, you know, you may want to go see how, a, you know, a firm your size actually uses some case management software, um, you know, if they'll let you do that. Um, and that could be beneficial to you, you know. You, you could really find out a lot about the software product. Next step. Got about, um, a, got about a minute left. Okay. Next step is implementation planning. You want to make sure that the implementation of that program on your site isn't going to be unduly burdensome. Um, you want to also figure out what kind of modifications that you might want to make to the software are. Um, typically, you want to not make a lot of modifications to it because it's expensive. Um, and then you've got to think about converting all your data to the new program and how difficult that's going to be and how costly it's going to be. You know, transitioning from uh, you know, one software or one accounting program to the other could be very difficult. Even one email program to another could be difficult. But you know, but that's it. That's the uh, the 10,000 foot version of a software negotiation or a software selection process. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a it's a well defined process. It's the process that you know, almost every company uses, um, and there are a lot of steps and workbooks and forms associated with that. And uh, There's a lot of information about software selection, and that's a very, very quick uh, summary. And for those of you, and I thank you very much for that 30,000-foot view, and for those of you out there who want to get closer to it, I want to let you know that Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, will be presenting uh, a webinar on some of these issues tying in the cloud and the need for software selection, where we'll uh, also uh, bring in some other people who are uh, also authorities on topics so we can go through in more detail and pick out some of these things and have a forum after and answer your questions. So that will be coming soon. We'll be advertising it here on Law Talk Radio. We also want to thank our commercial sponsors and guests, uh, well, our listeners. We had also commercial sponsors, Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme, Peak Marketing and Sales, 
Law Publicist Communication, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, Credit Damage Expert, George Finder, and Pleading Director, Brand Services. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring you and our attorney and non-attorney audiences tips, tools, and practice area information and news you can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and I thank you for your time. Hey, Marcus, thank you for being on the show today. appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Nick. It was fun, and um, I hope it was informative. Great. And uh, telephone number or contact information? Absolutely. 312-263-0570 is my number. Again, it's 312-263-0570. My email is mharris at mshtechlaw.com, mharris at mshtechlaw.com. All right. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners, and uh, thank you to everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks a lot.